0: oh let me do this too because I I have I feel a little guilty because this has been in my briefcase for two weeks and I was supposed to put it in the lost and found so all right so if you recognize this camera or these really fun owl earrings I'm just going to put them up here so all right because I just I found them in my briefcase I was like I was supposed to put those in the lost and found I know so I know okay that's just a little bit of confession for me so I can take communion next (laughs) November without dying so okay so Project Hope, uh, we really feel like God's given us this word hope as a, as, a, as a theme for us for 2015, but I think it's the first time we feel like God has given us a word that's going to go far beyond a year. We, we feel like this word hope, this, this, this study of hope that we are in the midst of, that this is going to get mixed in as an, an ingredient to who we are as a church that's going to last forever. And so this fall in this series, we're casting vision for 2015, but I think we're really casting vision for way beyond that. And so what we've been doing, I've never done a study on the word hope before in the Bible, so I'm, I'm in this thing right with you. This is a brand new series for us, and, and we're following this word as we find it throughout the Bible. And what an amazing journey it has been taking us on. So Father, we just, we still our hearts before you tonight. And what we say is, Holy Spirit, speak to us, teach us, reveal to us this living word that the Father has given to us. Jesus, we bend our knee to you tonight. Have your way, and it's in your name we pray. Come on, and everybody said together, amen. Amen. So we've, what we've been saying every week is, hey, let's make sure we're understanding there's a great difference between the human emotion of hope and the virtue of hope. Many of us use this word hope throughout our week, throughout our day, and throughout our lives. And that's it's it's okay, right? I hope I'm gonna get a parking space that's close to the right. We have all of these things that we say, and those, right, that's representing human emotion. But the Bible takes this idea of hope to such a deeper place that it rises to the level of a virtue, and we get an example of that. These are the verses I'm gonna keep pointing you to every week as we go into this series. Romans 4, 18, says, even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations, for God had said to him, I should underline that because that's the difference, for God had said to him, that's how many descendants that you will have. When you have a promise from God and your circumstances seem to cause that promise to appear to be a lie, that's when the virtue of hope takes over. Where you say, I'm gonna put my hope in his promise and not in my circumstance, that kind of feeling goes beyond emotion and gets into the realm of virtue. 1 Peter 3.15, it says that when the world comes and asks us for a reason of our hope that we should be ready to explain it to them and talk to them about our faith in Christ. So on this journey that we've been on, we found that the first reference to the word hope in the Bible is in the book of Ruth. And it's in Ruth 112. You can get those sermons on the podcast. And then we've also updated recently the uh, uh, the notes. You know, every now and then, because we cover a lot of ground together uh, on Saturday nights and Sunday mornings. So we get the notes online. So we've got notes on uh, online for, uh, for the last several weeks. So Ruth 112. And just to give a little synopsis for this, which is gonna set us up for where we're going. Because this week I asked the question, Hey, where, where is it shared for the last time in the Old Testament? And I'm going to share that with you in just a minute. But this is what we found in this, in this series of Ruth that God has a divine destiny for us, one that is guaranteed by his sovereignty and never threatened by our circumstances. Let me read that again God has a divine destiny for us. You have a purpose as a person, as an individual. God created you for a reason. He's got things for you to do. A person that you were supposed to come. There was great and all of the intentionality that his divinity could muster. He put it into the creation of every human being's life. There is a divine destiny. It's guaranteed by his sovereignty. There is nothing in this world, there is no power that can come to God and say, I'm gonna stop you from the work of providence in people's lives so that they can be well positioned." to make the decisions that they need to do to fulfill their destiny. There are often times where our circumstances seem to deny that divine destiny, but this is where the virtue of hope wells up in our hearts, just like it did for Abraham. All right, so here's the last one. I was excited to find this this week. Again, this is a new study for me, so I'm sharing it with you as I'm finding it myself. What we find is that the last reference is Zechariah 9.12. It's interesting to me too, this is the next to last book in the Old Testament. We're going to talk a little bit more about that uh, in just a minute when we get to Malachi. But Zechariah 9:12 says, come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who still have hope. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. That's a pretty cool promise, isn't it? I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. All right, so I'm going to pause here for commercial break because I have one more thing that I was supposed to do you're used to commercial breaks because you watch TV all the time, so don't act like you're distracted. So, all right. So, Lisa Stevens. Where's Lisa? Is Lisa here? Lisa, raise your hand. Lisa has been doing our bookkeeping for us for the last couple of years, and and as the church has grown, the complexity of what we needed to happen in our books needed some help, and so Lisa came in. She has an accounting cape that she wears. She left it at home tonight that she's swooped in like a superwoman and helped us. And so uh, uh, we are doing now a job share, which we've already talked about with with Elise, who's a part of our Williamsburg campus, who's the admin for North Riverside Baptist Church. But we just wanted to say thank you to Lisa. This is a card for her and a gift that's in there. All right. Thank you. Uh, Now back to our regularly scheduled programming. All right, let me read the last part of this one more time. I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for each of your troubles. So as I was praying about God, how, how, how do we want to approach this verse? How do we want to approach this text? This is what I felt like God spoke to me. God has a kingdom economy for us. He has a divine destiny for us. He has a kingdom economy for us. One that is governed by his scripture, right? The destiny is guaranteed by his sovereignty, but we're saying that there's a kingdom economy for us, one that is governed by his scripture and never transcended by our conclusions, this idea, it's striking to me that, that God's saying, hey, the last thing I'm going to, be able to say about hope in the Old Testament, I want to talk about the economy of the kingdom of heaven. That's, now, that's a big idea, and I'm going to focus in on that in a very specific way over the next several weeks, but this is important to us because one of the things that God is saying to us, hey, that there are principles and truths that govern the kingdom of heaven that will not make sense to you in your human understanding and your temporal existence, That that there are things that God says to us, there are things that God asks for us, there are principles that that he gives to us, and when we try to understand those things from a human perspective and through a human filter, we can get confused, we can get even disenchanted, we we, we can find ourselves saying this just doesn't doesn't make sense. Let me give you an example of what some of those might be. Revelation 21.5, love this verse. This is where Jesus says, in heaven, right? This is a glimpse into the heavenlies, into eternity. This is is the great declaration, behold, I make all things new. Now, this is an important declaration for us because if you've ever spent time reading a revelation, we joke about this every now and again here at City Life, you find that there are some people doing some things over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over, and they've been doing things for thousands of years. Now, I don't know about you, but when I would read that, the type A personality that I am, I would think when I get to heaven, God, please don't ask me to do those things, because that's going to be terribly monotonous for me, right? You ever had that thought? Am I the only one? I'm just a little bit weird confessing that by myself tonight. Okay. Okay. Right. Right? There's a story of these 24 elders that are surrounded by this glassy sea, and, and there's the throne of heaven, and they keep singing the same song over and over and over, and they cast down their crown, and then they pick it up, and they cast it down. They've been doing that for thousands of years. In our humanity, we say there's monotony, but that's ascribing a temporal principle into an eternal realm, and you cannot do that. Because Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. See, in this world, we have what's called the law of diminishing marginal returns, so, so newspaper boxes, believe it or not, are successful in our society where thievery is so prominent. Because you can put your money in that box but when you open it up, that second newspaper is worth so little for you, you will not even take it, even though there's no consequence for it. So that makes the law of diminishing marginal returns. In heaven, the glory of God is so enamoring and overwhelming. He could ask you to sing the same song and do the same thing for him for 10,000 years and it will be just as new the millionth time as it is the first time because he makes all things new, right? You with me? And in, in the human world, that does not make sense. But in an eternal realm, his wisdom transcends human understanding. Mark eight thirty four to 35. One of the great stories where Jesus says if you want to find your life, you've got to lose your life. If you want to gain your life, you've got to give up your life, right? He gives this, this great message. It's just backwards. There is nothing for us in this realm, right? If we give something up, we lose it, right? If we want to gain it, we need to go get it. Jesus says, not in my kingdom. It does not work that way. Time and time and time and time again, we find all of these teachings throughout God's word that seem to be upside down from our human experience. So what we're gonna be talking about for the next several weeks, which is gonna frustrate some of you, which you're, you're not gonna like where we're going for the next few weeks, but it's okay. You're gonna be all right, right? We're gonna talk about giving for the next few weeks. And let me tell you about why we're gonna talk about that. Because I've been on my own journey, I shared about this about a year ago. I've been on my own personal journey of transformation with my comfort level in talking about giving in the church. And I shared this story about a year ago. So about a year ago, I was having a conversation with God and you know, those moments where pastors, we pride ourselves on how great of a job we're doing. If you didn't know that, pastors do those types of things, right? And so we, we have our flaws and faults. If you're looking for a church where the pastor doesn't have flaws and faults, you shouldn't come back here anymore because I have plenty of my own, right? So. I'm having this conversation with God, and one of the things I was just praying about, I was talking about God, how great it is that as a church we seldom talk about giving, right? And and so in in this conversation with God, I was just praying for people because I know that so many people that come here, they've spent their whole life inundated with teaching on giving that's bad. They've been manipulated. They've been pressured. They've been taught things that just aren't true, and they're looking for a church that just, every week they come, they're not feeling like somebody's trying to take their money, and so I've just, right, I was saying, we're just not going to be that church, and so this is what I I felt like God said to me. So Fred, he calls me Fred, doesn't call me Pastor Fred. He said, Fred, he said, and then when I'm really in trouble, it's Joseph Frederick, right? Well, that's my first and middle, right? So, did Anybody have that when you were growing up, if you got the first and the middle? And then if you got called your siblings' names before they got to your name, <laughs> hide. Just hide. Somebody tell the nursery that so they can learn that lesson. Right? So, so this is what I felt like God spoke to me. I, I, again, if you were here, you remember me telling the story. I felt like God said, Fred, so what you're telling me is you've got people that come to church every weekend who you know have been inundated with horrible teaching, bad teaching, manipulative teaching, and your response to that is that you're not going to say anything. What is wrong with you? I'm a loser. I'm a loser, right? So something changed in me about a year ago. And so, so I've, I'm just, I'm on this journey. I'm just telling you, we want to be a church that teaches good things, what this book has, has to say. And, and so I had those thoughts. God said those things to me. And this, those three things, I hope you're on that journey for your whole life, because this is the journey that I'm on. I have things that I think, things that I think are right, things that I think are good, and we take those things to conversations with God, and then he talks to us, and then what God says to us, it should cause us to change, to change the way we think, to change the way we live, to change who we are. So I've got five common complaints that that I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I just want you to raise it maybe on the inside where you were to say, I've had that thought, and maybe you would say, I'm having that thought right now, all right? So this is one of the reasons why people complain about teachings and givings in the church, is because they've been in churches, I've been in churches, where the people making the decisions have serious character flaws in their life, and the processes that the church employs for accountability are terribly flawed. Now, we're not going to go into those in detail tonight, but we're going to talk about those next week. We're going to talk about who the people are in our church that make financial decisions, about what their role is in the church, and we're going to talk a little bit about processes that we have in place, because we want you to know, at the City Life Church, we're not those other churches. We bring great intentionality to who it is and how we do it, that you can talk about giving in a church and talk about finances at a church in a way that inspires people and doesn't berate and demean people. So we're going to talk about that, but maybe you've had that. I've had those feelings in churches that I've been in the past, that things are just hopelessly flawed. Another one is this, is that sometimes it feels like, and this is a fair complaint, when the, when the pastor who works for the church teaches about giving, it feels a little self-serving, right? Right, Some of you, right? if you would raise your hand, you're thinking, I've, I've had that thought. I had that thought about five minutes ago. So I just, I'm just going to share a little bit about my journey. So one of the things I love about the providence of God in my own personal journey is that I made a decision for Christ in December of 1990. I made my vow of devotion to Christ then. And I knew early on that I had a vocational calling to ministry in my life in that first year, but it took almost 10 years for that vocational ministry calling to, to, to come to fruition. So I had almost a decade in, a, in a, a non-church job. And during that 10 years, I was a part of my church. I was a leader in my church. I tithed at my church. I participated in Faith Promise in my church. I was just as excited about giving and tithing and Faith Promise for those 10 years long before church ever became a job for me. Now, why do I share that? Because it, it's personal for me. I think that's a gift that God gave to me. Because one of the temptations that I face, one of the whispers that the enemy gives into my ear, oftentimes on Saturdays, is when I'm praying for the service. This is one of the whispers I hear. The only reason you're teaching that is because it's self-serving. That's one of the the temptations, the things that I have to face. The only reason you're talking about that, right? And so when when it's this particular topic, which I had those thoughts and feelings today, I'm able to take a deep breath, and I'm able to say, no, it really isn't. Because I've got those 10 years that I can look back to and say, I was just as passionate about the things that I'm gonna teach on then as I am now. And the reason I was passionate about them is because of Jesus, not because of a job. And even though it's a job for me today, I had a whole decade of it just being about Jesus, and that's all that it is about me today. And any pastor who has a job, that job should be because of who Jesus is in their life, and the things that they teach and they share should not be because of the job that they have, but because of the Jesus that they serve. And, and if you're thinking to yourself, too, I appreciate what you're saying that, Fred, but, but my experience in church is just I go from church to church to church, and everywhere I go, I just, I'm just i frustrated about all this conversation about money. And what I want to ask you to do, if that's you tonight, and maybe you're here for the first time and go you're, you're thinking, here we go again, right? Stick around, kick the tires, look behind the curtain, ask some questions, and what you're going to find, it's a healthy church. There's no question that we will not answer. There's no question that we want to answer. So, so this is part of what happens. We, we, we teach about this often. You've got scripts that are operating in your life. I have scripts that are operating in my life. One of the ways that scripts are the most prevalent in our lives are in our marriages and in our parenting. When, when you get married, you bring a script, just like a movie script. Like, I love that commercial where they're reading off of the script and then, right, that's a car commercial. Car commercial, they have great commercials, right? And so, right, but this is life. This is what you and I do, right? Because we grow up in a home, and we watch um, a mom and a dad, or maybe you didn't get to watch a mom and a dad, and that's a script unto itself, but there's a script about marriage that's given to you, and then when you get married, you begin to work off of that script, and this is part of the journey of Christianity, is letting God rewrite the scripts of our lives, not with the scripts from our human experience, but get the scripture to become the script of our lives to change the way that we live. It happens in parenting. You were parented, or maybe you weren't parented, that's a script unto itself. And so when you begin to parent, we talk about this in premarital counseling, when, when, when you begin to parent, you have a script that you're working off of. That's why we do a, a parenting class in the spring every year, because we want you to have a godly script that you're working off of. All of us came into this church with a church script. All of us came into this church with a church script that's based on our human experience. And what we're saying is, go on this journey with us, Go on this journey with us and let God write a new script in your life for what you should expect church to be. And let's do that together. Number four, right? So some of you here tonight, I've been trying to get somebody to come to church with you. You've been inviting them to the church, right? And they show up and you're like, good God, really? You're going to talk about giving? On the They finally come! They finally come so so at the at the church that 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 I came from, they had a, a mic up here, just like we do, so if people felt like that that God had, that was, was saying something to them that they were supposed to share with the church and they can come and we talk about it and if we feel like it's, you know, it's something that fits in, then we pause the service and you've been at services where we've, where we've done that before and so at the church we, we came from, it was really prevalent but sometimes the people working the microphone didn't do a good job of filtering the people that, that shared. You, you're tracking with me? Because sometimes people come because they just want an audience and so that's part of our job to filter that out but there were times where that wasn't done very well and some people would do some odd things and, and, and during baby death, dedications it was a larger church so baby dedications were big and family would come it was like a 1500 person church and they would have extended family and and every I tell you every time we would do a baby dedication the the dad would always pull me inside and say who's working the mic this morning right? Because they've been trying to get their family to come, and the last thing, please, God, don't let anybody do anything odd. And then my parents, that's all they're going to be talking about when we go out to lunch, right? And so some of you here tonight, and so this is what I would say. If you bring someone to church, and they come for the first time, and this is what's being talked about, you've got to trust the providence of God. That God knows when they're going to come, and He knows what they need to hear, he knows what they need to hear, and there's just got to be something inside of you that says, "I'm going to trust that God knows what we need to hear and when we need to hear it." So this is this is the last one I want to talk about a little bit. You might feel hopelessly threatened every time a church talks about money, and this is this is what I would share with you. It's it's easy for us to have our our fists clenched when it comes to our material resources. What I want to ask you to do is just to over these next few weeks together. We want your fists to be clenched, but we want them to be clenched to the will of God. Because if, if, if your fists are clenched to anything else except his will, when God begins to reveal his will to you, you will begin to negotiate that will based on what he's asking you to let go. But if I'm not holding on to anything else, and the only thing that I'm holding on to in my heart is his will, when he comes to me and asks me to lay things down, I've already laid them down because the only thing I want for his life is his will and so when we read his word and it begins to challenge us when he begins to speak to us and it begins to require change in us make sure that you're holding tightly to the emotion and the feeling of the virtue of saying god i want to be found faithful i want to be found faithful all right so i'm going to tell you a story this is the first hog hunt ever went on went on two years ago thank you kevin kevin said i look good in that picture that's my pre-beard pre-beard era So that picture in the middle is me remembering the article that I had read that morning about I didn't know there were panthers in Florida. Did you know there were panthers in Florida? And so I did this little selfie out there in the jungles of Florida. And you might not think that there are jungles in Florida, but there are spiders as big as your face. There are more lethal snakes there than a zoo exhibit. There are panthers, and then there are also alligators. This little place here is where we would stop, and we would sit on that log for a break during the day when we were tracking the hogs, and every time I sat down on that log that was stretched out over the water, I kept thinking about all the wildebeests that I saw on the nature channels. They would come, right, for their their morning drink of water that that might be me. So this was me tracking a herd of hogs, and then I realized that maybe there's a panther tracking me, right? That just puts a little fear in your heart. So this is... This is Dick and Dan. They should have their own show, should they not? It's Dick and Dan. And so Dan is a friend of mine from Mechanicsville outside of of Richmond. So let me, uh, now that I've set that up a little bit, one of the things that I had with me when I was in the woods, because we were oftentimes by ourselves, was a compass, I didn't have a map of where we were, but they would drop us off at a tree stand and and they would would come back and get us that night. So we were oftentimes there uh, all day by ourselves. And so I would get a little bored in the tree stand if there wasn't an activity and I would go scout around a little bit and see if I could find some tracks. And so because I did not have a map, I had a compass, I would orient myself before I would leave my tree stand and I would explore a certain area so that I could return to that tree stand even if I was lost just by way of a certain heading. Does that make sense? I knew that if I just traveled, say, southeast, then I would get back to that tree stand. So I did that all around the tree stand. But the funny thing about magnetic compasses are, which I did not have to worry about it there, but you might have to worry about it, is that they will be interfered with by metal, right like a vehicle or a metal building or power sources so you can actually have a compass that can give you a false reading and you think that you're heading in the right direction but you're actually going the opposite from the where you're supposed to go so then there's Dan when we were with Dan we didn't really need a compass because he's a living compass right <laughs> He had all kinds of gear to test the. He was pulling stuff out of his pockets all the time. What is that? How do, how do you do that? So we were in this one part, in this one area where we, we were tracking this herd of pigs for hours on end. By the end of it, my friend, Pastor Dave, who pastors down in Florida, we had no idea where we were. No idea, we were in brush so thick that you, you, you couldn't even see your feet when you looked down. And, and, and we said, Dan, how do we, where do we go from here? He said, if we just walk about 20 paces that way, there's gonna be a barbed wire fence and a road that we're only five minutes from the house. We said, okay, right, maybe, maybe, right? Sure enough, 20 paces, barbed wire fence, road that leads back to the house. He may be involved in the dark arts, I'm not sure. We might have to do an intervention. But, but he's spent his whole life outside. He, has a, he was never boastful, but he was never apologetic about his experience in the field. Well, why am I telling you these stories? I'm telling these stories for two reasons, as before we get into the meat of what we're talking about tonight, and then over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to ask you to ask yourself the question, is there any wrong thinking that is affecting my true north? All of us are walking in here with a lifetime of things that we've heard and that's been taught about giving. Some of that stuff is good, some of it is not. And you, I'm asking you to go on a journey with the Holy Spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, reveal to me the things that I have embraced as true, that's wrong thinking, that's affecting the compass of my heart to discern what is true and what is right. And the next one is this. Do I trust this guy's experience in the field? Not just me, but people. When you choose to call a church home you want to find a place where there are people that are a little bit farther along in their journey than you and you can trust their experience because there are times when life gets complicated and we want to know that we're walking with people and we can look to them and say where would you go if you were me I've got people in this church that I look to for that. I hope that you're finding people in this church that you can look to for that. That's part of having the gift of spiritual community as people that are just a little bit more seasoned than we are. That I'm not talking about doing what people say or people controlling you. If you've been a part of this church for any amount of time, you know that's not the culture of this church. We're talking about genuine relationship. We're talking about mutual respect. We all need people that we can grab and say, this is where I am. What do you think? What direction do you think I should go in? So I've got three things. I think we're probably just going to do two tonight, and there's eight total that we're going to work through over the next few weeks. But the two tonight is, do I understand the idea of a portion? Do I understand the idea of a consequence? And then the one that I think we'll start with next week is, do I understand the idea of of priority. Okay, you ready? The portion. Where does this idea of a portion when it comes to giving at our local church come from? I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to share that with you. Genesis 14. Genesis 14. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God most high, brought Abram. His name has not yet been changed to Abraham. And just to give you a sense of the history here, Moses and the Mosaic law and all of that is a long way off. Centuries before. He brought Abram some bread and wine and Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth and blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. And then listen to what it says. Then Abram gave, gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods that he had recovered. Now let me jump over to Matthew twenty three twenty three, and then I'm going to talk about these two verses and why both of them are important to me personally. Matthew twenty three twenty three. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, you are careful to tithe, which means a tenth part, even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the most important aspects of the law, which then he talks about virtues, justice, mercy, and faith. Now, he could have stopped there, but he did not. This is Jesus himself teaching, you should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Those two verses that are important to me at a personal level, when, I, when I'm asking the question, God, what do you expect of me? Because this is the things that I'm teaching, the things that we're, that we're living in ourselves, is that a lot of people want you to believe that this idea of tithing is unique to the Mosaic Law. It is not. It it, it predated. This is why I believe God put that verse in Genesis in there and why this verse in Matthew is in there is because he's bookending some history for us. He wants us to know it is not unique to the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was a continuation of things that God had already established. It just wasn't recorded for us in many respects. And one of them is this idea of giving a tenth part of what we have to a spiritual community that we call home. In Matthew 23 23, I've heard people say, well, Fred, he's talking specifically to some religious leaders. Well, that's a dangerous way to interpret the Bible. If you set aside everything that Jesus said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, anytime he was ever speaking to a religious leader, I'm just telling you, you have set aside a big part of Christianity, right? It's, it's in there for a reason for us, and so, so this idea of a portion is something that God has come up with that now he has given to us, and it's something that he asks us, I believe, to walk in with our finances, now, now, when you're reading the Old Testament and asking the question, when I see things in here, how much of that am I supposed to do now? now I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but I'm just saying I haven't found that yet if it does. I've not found anything from the Old Testament as we're asking the question, does it carry forward into the New Testament? It does not fit into one of these three categories. For some of the things, they're released meaning that the Mosaic law in much of the Old Testament is divided into three categories. There's ceremonial law, there's civil law, and then there's moral law, which drives me crazy because, you know, I have an alliteration addiction. I wish there was a a third C there, but it's not, right, in all the classes. All right, so just a little sidebar there. All right, so when you're looking at things that are released, usually it's things from the civil law and the ceremonial law, right? Priests had to wear a certain kind of outfit back then. We don't have to do that anymore. It, It mattered to God then, doesn't... It doesn't matter now. There's dietary laws. The principle of dietary laws is to be in good stewards of your physical body. That remains today, but the way that that had to be accomplished, that's been released. Praise God for barbecue. Okay, right? So that's been released. That you, you're not. They had to follow it then, right? You understand? There's things that have been released. There's things when we read in the Old Testament. There's, there's a journey we go through that things have been left behind. Then there are things that remain, like the Ten Commandments. If Jesus does not come back for another 10,000 years, it's still wrong to steal. If Jesus doesn't come back for another 10,000 years, hey, guess what? Rest is still important to God, the idea of a weekly Sabbath. There are things that remain. They're not going to change. They've not ever changed, and they're not going to change, not ever. And then there's race. Right. Things that Jesus said, I'm going to I'm going to raise the standard. So the Sermon on the Mount, if you've never read that, Matthew five, six, and seven. Oh, it's good. But I, put, read it carefully, because you're going to walk away going, well, wow. Because there's times where Jesus says, I know that you've read in the law that it says this, but now I'm saying, it's that. He says in the law it talks about adultery, but I'm saying to you, if you linger in a lustful moment in your heart after that person, you've already sinned. He raised the standard. There's lots of things in the Mosaic Law about how we treat our enemies. Jesus says, I just want you to know from from this day forward, I'm going to ask you to love them. There are things in the Old Testament where he raises the standard. He takes it to a higher place. Even in his ministry, which is one of our six great commands, which we're going to be talking about this in the, in the beginning of the year, those numbers, the one, the six, the 12, and the 24, and what they mean for us, where Jesus says, I'm going to ask you to love one another as I've loved you. When he was asked about the two greatest commandments, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. But even on that last week of his life, he raised the standard. It's one thing to love God, to love others the way we would love yourself, but Jesus says, now I'm going to ask you to love the world the way that I love you. That's just loving people different. You know what I think? Jesus is in the process sometimes of taking us farther and taking us deeper. Now when it comes to the idea of a biblical tithe, I'm just telling you, I have a hard time putting it in the category of release. Because when I read that text in Genesis, and when I read that text in Matthew, I just, I don't see Jesus putting it there. I just don't. You got to come to your own conclusions. I'm just sharing your mind and how we live. Then there's remain. I can see people making an argument for that. But for me, we live in a place of we think God has just taken the ceiling off the number. We think 10% is a beginning. We think it's a great start, 10% of our gross annual income. But as a family, our heart is we just want to keep moving past that all the rest of our lives. Because we understand that there is an economy to God's kingdom. There is an economy to his kingdom that does not make sense. And we want to live our lives head over heels Deep into everything that God has for us. And I think, which is this message, a hope for generosity, you cannot be too generous. Scripture must never be leveraged to justify living less. So many people, we've done it, I've done it, we use the Bible, we use the Bible as a way out when it was given to us to find a deeper way in. It's not given to you to find a way out. It's it's given to you to find a deeper way in. It's given to me to find a deeper way in. If you find yourself in a conversation where you're trying to use God's word as justification to live less out, I would say, don't do that. That's not why he gave us this book. It's supposed to be a map that helps us to find our way to where we're just lost in his kingdom. All right, number two. You want number two? Some people say, nope, I really don't want number two, (laughs) right? One's enough for me tonight. All right, the consequence, the consequence, Malachi 3, 7 through 10, Malachi 3, this is some of the most astounding texts in the Bible. Something God says here, he does not say, this is one of the few places in the Bible where, where people might say, does God ever contradict himself? I think you can make an argument that he does it here, but when you're sovereign, you can do whatever you want. All right, Malachi 3, 7 through 10. Ever since the days of your ancestors, you have scorned my decrees and failed to obey them. Now return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of heaven's armies. But you ask, how can we return when we have never gone away? Should people cheat God? Yet you have cheated me. That's his response back to them. But you ask, what do you mean? When did we ever cheat you? You have cheated me of the tithes and the offerings that are due for me. You are under a curse. We're going to talk about what that means. You're under a curse. Your whole nation has been cheating me. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse so there will be enough food in my temple. And if you do, says the Lord of heavens, listen to what he says here, I will open up, this sounds a lot like Zechariah to me, I will open up the windows of heaven for you and I will pour out blessings so great that you won't have enough room to take it in. Try it. Put me to the test. Everywhere else in the Bible, it says putting God to the test is a sin, but right here, God says I'm going to make an exception. Isn't it interesting that this is the thing that He picks to make an exception on? I find that striking. Out of all the things that God said, I'm going to set aside my prohibition on putting me to. I'm going to set it aside when it comes to this biblical mandate of the tithe. He said test me in this i just that's how i'm living my life i want to put god to the test that this promise is true if we have only ever found it to be true our entire lives one of the things i love about where god put it this is an important part of studying the bible where does he put it when does he say it he puts it in malachi and i don't think that's a coincidence i think that's part of his intentionality because malachi is the last book of the old testament and is the beginning of 400 years of prophetic silence 400 years that God says, I'm not going to speak through any prophets until the birth and the beginning of the ministry of John the Baptist as a precursor to the birthing of the Messiah, which is the greatest dramatic pause in all of history. Now, we understand that that 400 years of silence was set aside to make the ministry of John the Baptist all the more loud. You ever had something really loud happen from a moment of silence, and then it's just, it's deafening how loud it is, I've shared this story before that, you know, we're avid boaters, and one of our first boats, and we were still learning, and the whole, you know, the horn that you have on the water when you need help, and you can screw that top off, which is what we do now, but we didn't know then, so we kept it screwed on, and so it's in the bag, and we're coming back from Lake Anna, and our kids are young. It's like at 9.30 at night, and we're on these back roads, and all of a sudden, something shifted in the back of our Ford Explorer, which we had then. I think our kneeboard fell on top of that horn, right? It is quiet. It's in the country. it's it dark right right in the thing i about wet my pants drove into a ditch we almost all died right there on that very night right now that horn is loud enough as you would think it would be inside of a closed car and our kids were like right they never even woke up but when something loud happens and it displaces silence it's amplified god amplified the ministry of john the baptist with 400 years of prophetic ministry but the, the part that people forget is that it also means what he said right before he stopped talking is pretty important. Now, some of you, you like to talk, and you know who you are. So let's not talk about 400 years. Let's just talk about 40. 40. All you talkers in here, right? If God came to you and said, you cannot talk for the next 40 years, except for these next couple of minutes, what do you want to say? Right? Right? Yeah, it's Kevin said, just kill me. Just kill me, just kill me. Samurai, here it goes, I'm coming to you. Right. You, you with me? Maybe he gave you a few days to think about it. You, you tracking with me? You, you get the weightiness of this? It's the last thing that you get to say before you enter 40. God said, I'm gonna enter 400 years of prophetic sight. You better believe. We understand that he was amplifying John. He's amplifying Malachi just as loud. He's saying, I want, it's no coincidence that this is the only place that he says, test me. In. This is one of the last things that God said for 400 years. Now, I'm not saying he didn't speak to people, right? I'm talking about a prophetic voice to the world. All right. So what does Proverbs 333 mean about God? Because that word cursing, it makes us a little bit nervous because we've grown up in a Harry Potter generation and we don't want God to be that. And he's not. So rest easy. Okay. What does Proverbs 3.33, I want to read this one, and I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, but I want to talk about this one first. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord curses the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the upright. The Lord curses the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the upright. Now what's this about? This idea of blessing and cursing, I think there's a lot of confusion about this in the church today, too. This could be another sermon for another time, but just a little short version here. That When you make a vow of devotion to Christ, you're saying, Jesus, I want this book to govern my life. And so when you make that decision, you can think of boundaries that you now enter into. And all of these boundaries are the things that God says, hey, don't do this and don't do that. And if you're a new follower of Christ, you begin this journey of sorting through the things in your life that belong and don't belong. And this is part of our message as a church, heaven now, heaven forever, is that all of those boundaries are not because God's a prude and He's trying to keep us from good things in this life that He feels are a threat to Him, but all of those boundaries are in place because He's trying to protect us from mediocrity. Because the things that he says don't do are going to rob us of the deeper living, right? And so this idea of cursing means that when you step outside of the boundaries that he has given, you're living a cursed life because your life is void of the blessing that you would have had if you would remain inside the, the boundary. God's not up there like Harry Potter with some wand and he's the, these incantations that when you disobey, he hits you with it. And he, right that, that's how, But that's how we, that we view God. That's not who he is. What he says is, I've got boundaries. I'm going to tell you what those boundaries are. Make some decisions. And if you choose to live within the boundaries that I've given to you, then you're going to walk in my favor. You're going to walk in my blessing. If you choose to step outside of that, it's a cursed life. Not because there's some incantation that I'm going to speak over you. It's a cursed life because that's a life that is chosen to forgo the favor of God. We stay inside of his boundaries. What does that verse mean to you? That's what it means to me. All right, 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11. Remember this, a farmer plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much you should give. Don't give reluctantly in response to pressure. If there was any text that I could say speaks to the culture of our church with giving, it's these verses right here. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. As Scripture says, they share freely and give generously to the poor. Their good deeds will be remembered forever. For God is the one who provides seed for the farmer and then bread to eat. In the same way, he will provide and increase your resources, then produce a great harvest of generosity in you. That's Malachi. Promise all over again. Yes, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. And when we take your gifts to those who need them, they will thank God. So two good things will result from this ministry of giving. The needs of believers in Jerusalem will be met, and they will joyfully express their thanks to God. This is the question I have. What does this mean about you? See, because these boundaries, if you can think of those that God gives to us when we make a vow of devotion to Christ, these boundaries are not just about not doing the things that we shouldn't do. It's also about doing the things that we should. And one of the reasons why people live a life respecting the boundaries, but the favor of God and the blessing of God always seems elusive to them is because their idea of sin is only about the not doing the things that they shouldn't, but they've not yet embraced the idea that these boundaries are also about all the things that we should do. So this idea of a tithe falls into this category of something that God's asking us to do. And if I don't do all the things that God is asking me to do, even though I feel like I'm inside the boundaries, there's a part of me that's still outside. Because being inside the boundary is don't do the things that you shouldn't and make sure you're doing the things that you should. So, when you hear those verses in 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 11, you might say, Fred, I'm living within the boundaries of God, and you've got a list of all the things that you gave up. But what I would say is, you need a second list. What about the list of all the things that you have begun because of your vow of devotion to Christ? And I think this is one that's at the center. Grace does not mean there are no expectations, it means there is forgiveness. People can get sideways in what they believe about grace. I'm desperate for grace. But grace does not mean that God says to me, do whatever you want, it does not matter. Grace means that when I step outside the boundaries, there is forgiveness that he has for me every time. 1 John 1, 9, if I confess my sin, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It means that there is forgiveness, and forgiveness does not mean that there are never consequences. If you are parenting, we forgive our child when they step outside the boundaries, but if you're parenting well, you leave some consequences in place so they can learn their lesson so they don't so easily step out the boundaries next time. God says to you, he says to me, hey, when you, I have a grace for you, but I have expectations for you. And when you don't live up to those expectations, my forgiveness is always here waiting for you, but it doesn't mean that I'm going to give you a pass on every consequence, because if we know that, and our earthly understanding of parenting, how much more does he as a perfect father to us? I'm in the home stretch. Never forget that being a devoted follower of Jesus is consequential. It's consequential. This is part of our journey together as a church. This is part of the commitment that we make to each other, to go on this journey with one another and love each other enough to ask ourselves and one another the hard questions. So I'm asking you some hard questions tonight, and I'm going to be asking them over the next couple of weeks. So what does it mean? It means that if you're not tithing, you're going to have to pawn some of your stuff. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I know, I know. Some people were grabbing their purse. I'm out of here, baby. Who do I give this membership packet back to? Right. Although I'm sure there's some crazy preacher somewhere teaching that stuff, huh? God help him. This this symbol, it has an interesting history. I'm I'm a big history buff. You you know that by now, right? It has an interesting history. Some people believe that this symbol right there, right, the pawn shop symbol that we see on on pawn shops, that that some people believe that it traces itself back to a coin that was used in Israel in the mid-60s to late-60s A.D., it's a Roman coin that was used in Israel. And there, in the back of this coin, there's three pomegranates that all come from a, 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 a one stem. And so some people believe that's the origin of, uh, of this. Now, some people believe that it traces its roots back to medieval times. There was the Lombards and there were the Medici's. And they were two powerful banking families in, in medieval times. And, and, and they had this symbol on their places of business. And there's a lot of argument and discussion about right, the Lombards are saying the Medici stole it from us and people that are in the Medici camp are saying, no, we, we, the Lombards got it. So there's, there's, nobody knows who did it first. There's a third one that, that, that I like a lot. It, it traces itself back to St. Nicholas. And if you have a Catholic background, you know St. Nicholas is the patron saint of bankers. Because there's a story that St. That, that Nicholas, he was during the third and the fourth uh, centuries is when he lived that during his ministry that there was a moment where he came across a family in need and he gave three bags of gold coins to this man so that he could rescue his family. So some people say that's where the origin of this symbol is from. But for me personally, I think that there was a homeless man years ago before I was married. I lived in the inner city of Richmond, and we were involved in a homeless ministry. I had guys that would come off the street and live with me, and I'm just, I was never successful in helping any of them, right, get back on their feet. Usually they always just stole my stuff, so, right? But sometimes it's not about changing people. It's just about compassion. And if you get involved in that kind of ministry, make sure that you're not there to fix people. Make sure that you're there to love people, and if there's any fixing to be done, God's going to work that out in their life. What they need from us is compassion, Right? Amen. Thank you, that child. Praise the Lord. From the mouths of babes. I'm riding in the car down Broad Street in Richmond, and, and, and we're passing this pawn shop that this homeless guy was a, frequented because pawn shops for poor people is their credit. Can't get a credit card, so they, they use pawn shops. They can go and sell things, but but that's not really how pawn shops are predominantly used. You think about that because of TV shows, but the way pawn shops are really used for poor people is they take things that are of value to them and they leave it as collateral for money that they borrow. And then if they don't come back to pay the loan, then the pawn shop takes that item and sells it to recover their costs. And, and the homeless guy I was with, oh, his name was Billy. I'm not gonna tell his last name, but his name was Billy. And he said, Fred, you know, do you know what that symbol means? I said, no, what, what does it mean? And he said, it means that when I go in there to pawn something when, when I'm in need, it means that they're only gonna, that when I borrow money, I'm gonna have to pay back $2 for every one that I borrow. That's what it means, Fred. And it means that, that if I take something and sell it, it means that they're only gonna give me They're only going to give me $1 for every two that it's worth because they always take more than they give. I'm sharing that with you tonight as a story because some of you, that's your view of God. When I talk about giving, when I talk about the tithe, this is the feeling that wells up in your heart. I'm not doing that because he already takes from me more than he gives. And what I would like to humbly suggest to you tonight, if you've bought into that, you've, you've bought into a wrong thinking that's affecting your true north. This is where we started. Can we just finish there? Zechariah 9, 12. I'm gonna have the worship team come back up because I want us to do a song. Just so that you guys can linger in his presence a little bit tonight and maybe sort through some of this stuff in your heart. Stephanie's taking off her bracelet so we're gonna be okay. (laughs) Zechariah 9, 12. I, I just want you to pretend you're the only one in here right now. And then I'm not up here But God is reading you a letter that he's written to you. And this is what he says. Come back to the place of safety. All you prisoners who still have hope. Because I promise this very day that I will repay two blessings for every one of your troubles. Stand with me. Father, we've had some fun tonight. We've had some laughs together tonight trying to lighten the weightiness of this message that you are, you, you've led us into. You, you knew this journey that we were gonna go on as we were following the word hope throughout your word. You knew we were gonna get to this place even though we didn't know we were gonna get to this place as we started. But this is where you have us. And so Father, let it be for all of us as we step into this place of worship that maybe we would just open up our hands before you. Maybe if, Father, people are here, they've never raised their hands, that they're, they're not going to necessarily do that if that makes them uncomfortable. Maybe just at their sides, they're going to go, they're just going to open up their palms. And that's their way of saying, I don't want my fists to be clenched to anything except your will. And God, if we need to make some changes in our financial life, even if it's going to cost us something God, even if it's going to change our standard of living, what we would say to you is God, we want to live inside your boundaries. Because we believe that there's no better place that we could ever make our home. in Jesus' name, come on, let's worship together to let go so in trust in him the waves and wind to know his name